So this morning, I walked out of my room, out of my house in New York, and it was super windy. It's really cold here. Something was in the air. There was a, a salty smell in the air. It smelled like an ocean breeze, and I was shocked because I've never smelled that here before. We're up in the Hudson Valley. The closest body of big body of water, I guess, is the Hudson River. You know, later on in the morning, I had a grapefruit, and I was like, this tastes like a mamon, which is a fruit that grows in Panama. It grew in our backyard where I grew up. So my sister said, man, Tatu, you know, looks like your brain is telling you that you want to be there. <laughs> I'm Regina Beach, and you're listening to Saturn Returns, a show about stories with a clear before and after. Today, I talked to Ernesto Dillon, Panamanian-born and New York-bred, about his activism, bushcraft school, and his dreams for the future. My name is Ernesto. I'm 22 years old. I was born in Panama City, Panama and I'm currently living in New York, where my mom's side of the family is from. Like I said, I was born in Panama, and half my family's there, my whole dad's side of the family's there. I really, really, really want to spend more time because there's so much there. There's infinite possibilities, really. Myself and a few of my very close friends from Panama, we've all gone north, right? Like, especially anybody who has an opportunity to pursue higher education usually leaves the country because there's better opportunities elsewhere. So I'm at the point now of trying to figure out, well, how do I reintegrate and what, what am I going to do there? I want to go in the spring, start cultivating a small piece of land uh, that my family has there, start planning out a permaculture, building up the infrastructure a little bit, maybe get some solar panels in there. And I have a lot of ideas about what that space could be. It could be experimental, it could be educational. And I have a few friends who are super willing to help. And it's kind of like a blank canvas. My parents planted a bunch of trees there over 20 years ago. I actually witnessed the first mango come out of one of the trees uh, last summer. So Panama is always on my horizon. And this is a very special time for the country for many reasons. There's elections coming up in the spring. Um, both for president and also for the mayor of Panama City. There's always been a lot of corruption since the beginning because in simple terms, it's a part of Colombia that the U.S. annexed in order to set up military bases, build the canal, etc., etc., etc. Politically speaking, it's, uh, it's kind of vital, you know, this moment because of the environmental crisis that the entire globe is going through and the momentum of global capital. And Panama's always been basically open for business, um, often without much vision for the future. Another kind of impetus I have for, for being there and getting involved in, in the community, both in Panama City and in the more rural areas of the country, is because I think information is very important and media is very important. And as I'm sitting here, you know, recording on this podcast, I have some ideas about a podcast I could do there um, with a friend in order to give a platform for free speech uh, and dissent and a platform for people who are forward thinking to give their opinions and their ideas so that we can start to kind of steer the ship 
in the right direction. So currently I'm home in New York in the Hudson Valley. I'll be here for the winter. I am working on a gig with an electrician doing some family housing in Newburgh, New York. Electrical work is something I've never done. I've seen people put solar panels together. I've, I've seen electricians fiddling around, but I've never really gotten my hands dirty. So I'm excited to learn a new skill, especially because I'm also into electronic music and uh, audio production, which is very electrical. And who knows the possibilities of what kind of studio setups you could create if you really knew how to work with electricity. I'm doing that. I'm also trying to build some projects here where, I, where I'm living. I have a, a sort of experimental plot of land in the backyard. So I've been working with some of the designs that we learned in Jack Mountain and I'm also trying to build a wood shop in the old garage behind my house. Ernesto and I spent nine weeks this past fall learning primitive living skills off the grid at Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in Northern Maine. I asked him to reflect on his time there. So when I got to Jack Mountain, it was super late and I remember walking through the woods in the dark to the library. Chris, one of the instructors, was guiding me there and I was gonna sleep there. And what struck me first was the air the quality of the air, I felt like I was in the right place. There's so much that happened in that time that it's hard to summarize because every day was so packed with new information and new knowledge. Overall, I think what made Jack Mountain such a special experience was the kinesthetic component, I guess you could say, that everything we learned, we did it physically. Often we did it right after we were taught or right after we got a demo we would go out and do it build the shelter carve uh, whatever kind of project we were doing if i had to choose a favorite experience it was probably sleeping out on the water on lake scopan on the canoes just looking up at the stars and waking up at sunrise and seeing orion and sirius coming over on the horizon and i, I think after the two months were over, I was living in a different world, and I still am, because the connection to nature was very deep. Uh, for instance, the night that we slept o over the open fires, or next to the open fires, that was really difficult. It was below freezing, uh, no blankets, nothing, and you had to keep getting up and stoking the fire. But Tim said something I thought was interesting, that it's like you're, it's like the boogeyman doesn't exist because you've taken your body into a very uh, uncertain, uncomfortable position and showed yourself that you can do it. You learn what self-care really is, and it's not what many think it is. It's actually knowing the limits of your body and mind Testing those limits, being aware that you are your own best friend, in a sense. And that can translate into any part of life. There were times at bushcraft school I would see Ernesto by the pond, behind the library, slowly and deliberately moving his body in a series of Qigong poses. I found Qigong when I had Lyme disease which is a very serious condition. I was very tired and I was very weak. I was actually on a medical leave from school. I was still on antibiotics. I'd been on them for like three, four months, and it was this indefinite treatment 
that this so-called Lyme disease specialist gave me, they weren't doing shit. So I was about to give them up. Uh, by luck, I ran into my old art teacher from middle school. We met at the Storm King Art Center, which is an outdoor sculpture park. And we started talking and I told him what was up and he said he'd had a serious injury and um, his Qigong practice helped him get through it and helped him heal completely. I became very interested and the conversation went on and on and on. We ended up meeting weekly to practice Qigong and it just completely turned everything around for me. It was very subtle at first, just following the movements and almost pretending to feel something. There's a lot of visualization in Qigong as well. And oftentimes you can't really feel something until you can visualize it. But I remember it was about my fourth or fifth time doing the practice with my mentor. And I felt this thing come out of my hand. It was like a shock, like an electrical shock come out of my hand. We were doing a tiger movement, which is very hand oriented. From that point, I knew what it felt like, the chi energy, and I started to feel it moving throughout my body. So as I continued to practice, I also changed my diet, and that took me very, very, very far, further than any kind of traditional medicine ever did. I stopped taking the antibiotics, and over the course of a few months, I started to feel much better and got over the hump. And there's so many theories about Lyme disease. Is it chronic? Is it not? Um, how do you treat it? I found that once I realized I could heal myself with the Qigong and feel what was actually going on inside my body, that's all I needed. Even if it was a slow process and it wasn't an overnight fix, it gave me the strength to overcome that Lyme disease. I still practice today, not as much as I would like. I'm always looking to teach others too because that's a good way to get into it again. There's a lot of different variations on Qigong. Anywhere is an okay place to start. It doesn't matter if you go to YouTube or get a book or go out and meet a practitioner, but it's a very powerful practice. I recommend it for anybody. As an environmental activist, Ernesto protested against the Dakota Access Pipeline before arriving at Bushcraft School. And after the course concluded, he drove to West Virginia to protest the Mountain Valley Pipeline. My experience as a water protector started in Standing Rock when I went with my sister. This was a little over two years ago. I went for about two to three weeks. It was a completely life-changing experience. It didn't really set in until after leaving how special Standing Rock really was. And I was at Sacred Stone Camp, which was a small camp. It didn't reach the same proportion as Osheti Sakowin, which was the, the main camp across the river. But Sacred Stone was the first. The fire, the sacred fire was constantly there. You know, it didn't go out from the inception of the camp. There was always a fire keeper. And around that fire, there were a lot of very interesting conversations that went on, um, spanning all kinds of topics. But generally, it was, you know, it was people 
trying to shed light on a new path, like a new way of living. There was somebody there who had biked some ridiculous distance and he was working on biodiesel and renewable energy, right? Ways to get off of the fossil fuels. There were a lot of cultures uh, represented, but there was a constant leadership, a very strong presence of the indigenous women. They were always the ones calling the meetings and keeping everybody in check, keeping everybody unified and intervening when there were arguments or conflicts. So I was very humbled. Uh, Most of my time there I was washing dishes and it was after some of the really uh, powerful direct actions had taken place, one of which resulted in in many people getting hypothermia and, uh, you know, they were sprayed with water cannons. So I didn't experience the front lines in that way. You know, I was always um, in a supporting role. It was very, very strong experience that led me into more activism and more interest in the whole anti-pipeline movement and the environmental movement in the U.S. A few weeks after I returned from Maine, I went to West Virginia, where there's currently another campaign going on called Appalachians Against Pipeline. And this is in in West Virginia and Virginia, because the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, crosses that border and ends in North Carolina at the refinery. And it's a natural gas pipeline that's going through very hazardous, mountainous terrain, Uh, It's unprecedented. It's never been done. It's a terrible idea. It's going to explode. It's going to leak. It's going to ruin people's farms, their livelihoods. So there's a lot of public um, local support, you know, and the campaign is still relatively small, definitely small compared to Standing Rock. And I was there for about the same time, about almost three weeks. I did take part in a successful direct action. I also spent a lot of time at the tree sits, which are an active blockade with folks living up in the trees about 100 feet up on a part of the easement where they're going to cut down the trees and clear it. It's the last uncleared patch of forest on the pipeline's path. I was with ground support, you know, helping the tree sitters and also just helping maintain camp and plan actions and uh, all sorts of things. I definitely think after having the experience in Maine, I was able to apply myself a lot more uh, toward the anti-pipeline struggle because of the skills, uh, because of knowing how to build with natural materials, um, knowing how to cook over an open fire. These are all things that really come in handy when you're out there trying to stop these projects that are going to go on unimpeded unless someone is there occupying the land and pushing back. Who inspires you? Who do you look up to? Honestly, there's so many people that I look up to. It's really hard to single anybody out. Freedom fighters. I guess someone who's impacted me recently is Gato Barbieri. He's a Argentinian jazz musician. And I've had his CD in my car for the last month. He plays the tenor sax. And I read the little cover on the album. The album's called Bolivia. He was saying something about wanting to sound, wanting the sound to represent exactly how he's feeling in that moment. To 
translate his emotions directly into sound without anything in between. That entire album is so natural sounding. Not just the sax, but the entire composition, the the percussion section, all of it, the rhythm section. I really admire that and look up to that. For one, just the quality of the music, but also the message behind it. The last song is an ode to Che Guevara, who's actually my namesake. And um, so there's always this political tone to the music. And it really reminds me of Latin America and those roots that I have. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? So in 10 years, I plan to rule the world. No, um, In 10 years, I hope to be alive, possibly with children. I haven't really thought that one through all the way, but... Uh, if I feel that I'm capable of raising children in the fucked up world that we live in, I probably will be raising children in 10 years. What I want to have accomplished is I want to have, I want to be fulfilled already by that point. And I think I'm getting there. Just the sense of having built something and created something that's going to live longer than you. So I guess in 10 years, I want to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining, self-reliant, and probably spending a lot of time in Panama, spending a lot of time on that land, continuing to cultivate whatever is there, uh, the trees and the plants and the animals and the buildings and the library and the all of it. I also want to have the ability to travel and to move around. I also hope that in 10 years... <laughs> Things aren't as critical as they are now. I mean, it's kind of wishful thinking. I think we're already in a post-apocalyptic time. And everyone's talking about this dismal, technological, dystopian future ahead of us. But I think it, it's it's happening now. It's already happened. And people have a simple choice whether to harmonize with nature. That doesn't mean being against technology, but it means recognizing that any kind of technology that's really going to advance the human race and and bring us into a sustainable future is technology that's working in balance with nature and not opposed to it. So hopefully in, in 10 years, um, a lot of the fuckers who are causing all this bullshit to happen will be in at um where they'll be gone right they'll be on mars that would be great man i'm i'm i've always been an optimist i think a lot of good could happen in the next 10 years and the future is very bright a lot of people will continue to die the wars will will continue to go on over the next few years but i have a feeling that humanity is going to wake up 10 years from now Hopefully, I will be there to witness it. Anything else that you want to add or share? So just to go off of that last question, if there's anything I would want to add, is just the importance of sovereignty, individual sovereignty and collective sovereignty. This is another lesson that came through after the Jack Mountain experience. Um, but it's come through in a lot of ways in the last year. Dependency on the system is very dangerous and especially when you don't have control of that system and of course i'm talking about the legal framework and the economic framework that people are living in 
in this country and, and all over the world. Again, returning to the roots and to the knowledge that's necessary for us to take care of each other and take care of ourselves without entrusting that responsibility with people who don't care at all and don't have that wisdom because it's ultimately our responsibility and our choice to start taking action. So I'm continuing to surround myself with people who are into taking action and not just talking about things. That's it. Yeah. Thank you, Gina, for this opportunity. And uh, I look forward to being in touch with everybody from the school. So thank you. I'm Regina Beach, and you've been listening to Saturn Returns. Thanks to Ernesto for sharing his story, and thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes or at reginagbeach.com. Click on the link for Saturn Returns. You can also like and comment on the show at facebook.com slash Saturn Returns podcast. See you next time.